I got a new alarm clock yesterday. It just came in the mail. I had to special order it from eBay because they don't make them anymore. It's about like this big, and the, the coolest thing it does, it does a lot of cool things, but the coolest thing it does is it tries to wake you up gradually and it simulates the sun rising. So it has this light on it that starts off faint and then grows to illuminate the whole room. But it also has sound and will play music and an alarm and it also emits a scent to wake you up. How cool is that? So it appeals to three senses. Uh, the only thing it does not do is like reach out and touch you. But like three senses, that's pretty cool. And I got that alarm because a couple weeks ago, I slept through my alarm, which I almost never do. But I almost missed this really crucial early morning meeting. And it just so happened that like a friend texted me really early in the morning and woke me up, so it worked out well. The passages we're going to look at today are like alarm clocks. You know, when an alarm clock goes off, it's alerting us to a, a piece of reality. It's saying, this is what time it is. And we can respond in different ways. We can either say, okay, I'm going to respond to this reality by getting up. I need to get up now. We could also hit snooze. We can shut off the alarm and ignore it. But even if we shut off the alarm, that doesn't change the reality of what time it is. So we're going to look at some tough stuff today, and if these passages are challenging, if they're difficult, if they're problematic for you, I'm going to offer some ways to deal with it at the end without shutting off the alarm clock. We're continuing in our 10 Tough Questions sermon series. Today our big question is, does hell really exist? And if it does exist, why does it exist? What purpose does it serve? We're also going to ask, what are the logical consequences if hell does not exist? But here's the question I want to start out with this morning. What is happening in Matthew 25? Matthew 25 describes the next great historical event Christians are waiting for, the return of Christ. When he returns, as we see in this passage, many things will be different from when Jesus first came to earth. The first time he came, he arrived with relatively little fanfare. About a dozen people knew he had arrived. But when he returns, no one will be able to miss it. We are told he will come in his glory. Glory in the Bible is often described as a blinding radiance, as bright as the sun. He will come in his glory, and every one of his angels in the universe will descend with him. He will descend with the greatest display of military might the world has ever seen. He will descend with the greatest display of beauty the world has ever seen, and the greatest amount of fanfare the world has ever seen. He will take his seat on the throne... Every person on earth will be gathered before him, no doubt in hushed silence. And he will no longer be teaching, inviting, wooing people as he did when he first came. He will come as the great perfect judge to tell each of us where we will spend eternity. As we go through these passages today, we'll see some truths emerge from Scripture 
Here's the first truth to take note of. The Bible describes us as eternal beings. No matter how old you may feel, you're just a spring chicken. You're just getting warmed up. You and I are eternal beings. When this historical event occurs, we will all be gathered before his throne, his angels surrounding him, and since we are eternal beings, Jesus, this king and judge, will tell us where we will spend eternity. This is the second great truth that emerges from scripture today. Jesus, as king and judge, decides where we spend eternity. And he is going to surprise a lot of people on that day. Jesus wants us to be shocked by what happens, by the reasons that people go to heaven, by the reasons people go to hell. And he wants us to know that it's not just other people. He wants us to know we will be there. Now it's interesting that as Jesus is sorting this out, he doesn't make any comment on what people believe. He doesn't make any comment on what people believe. He does not tell those going to heaven, well done, you have believed my message and invited me into your heart. You believe that I am the Son of God. Come and join me in the kingdom I have prepared for you. He makes no comment about what we believe. He comments on what we did. Why would he do that? He knows that what we really believe comes out in our actions. Both groups, those going to heaven and those going to hell, it's interesting that if they had recognized Jesus, they would have gladly served him. One group, those going to heaven, they feed Jesus, they clothe him, they visit him when he's in prison, even though he was disguised as a stranger, as a prisoner, people they didn't know. The other group of us going to hell declined to feed Jesus, to clothe him, to visit him in the disguise of a stranger. The person I know who best understands this passage and lives it out is a, a college professor I know. He's a very humble, sharp guy. His name's Michael, and he's married to his wife, Patty. Michael says he has this arrangement with God that's similar to the old Pink Panther movies. In the old Pink Panther movies, Inspector Clouseau is this detective who solves the tough crimes. And he has this trainer-slash-servant, Cato. And it's Cato's job to always keep the inspector on his feet, to try and catch him off guard. And Michael says that's the arrangement that he has with God, that God always tries to catch him with his guard down. So one day, Michael and his wife, Patty, are having dinner at McDonald's. And he says that Jesus, in the disguise of a homeless, schizophrenic man named Alex, comes up to their table and asks Michael to buy him dinner. And Michael said, I am aware of the ways Jesus tries to trick me off guard. So I quickly said yes to Alex slash Jesus and bought him a filet fish meal. And he also bought him an extra drink because it was 102 degrees outside last summer. He goes on to describe how Alex slash Jesus described to them all the medications he took and showed them the medications and which doctors he goes to see on which days and 
He talked about how his, his lips smacked together by, I forget the fancy word, Michael, this, this doctor, knew all about it. And as he and Patty were walking out of the restaurant, he said they were conflicted. He said it had been a great meal, but they were conflicted whether to, to congratulate themselves for recognizing Jesus in the face of the stranger or to be spurred on to keep their eyes more open to the ways that Jesus is disguised. That's a great illustration of what Jesus is calling us to. As we hear his words in Matthew 25, we may want to celebrate those who see him everywhere, who serve others selflessly. But a response, as good evangelicals, may also be, what in the world happened to salvation by grace? What happens to salvation by faith? You and I know that we are not good enough to earn our way with any good things we do, to earn our way back into God's good graces. We know that our sin had to be paid for by Jesus, that we need to embrace that by faith. We know we cannot do enough good things to earn our salvation. But here's Jesus, not talking about what we believe, but about what we do. Is he talking about salvation by works, and what about grace? The people Jesus disguised himself as had nothing to offer. There was nothing they could do for the people who helped them. There's a saying in politics that once you become president, you will make no new friends. Sure, everyone will want to hang out with you and, and be in your presence and go to the fancy dinners and have your ear, but is that because they're your friend or because they want things from you? Because you can take them to important places. It's easy to serve and to, to help important people. It's easy to serve in ministries where we get a lot of attention. But what about those, those people who can offer us nothing? Those who have nothing to offer must rely on the grace of others. If the hungry person had money, they could buy food. But they don't, so they must rely on the grace of others. If they had money, they could buy clothing. If they had Friends or family, they would have people to take care of them when they were sick. But since they don't, they must rely on the grace of others. And now Jesus is saying to those who really got his message, you have understood how much grace I've given you. You have understood that you were spiritually naked, spiritually in prison, and that you needed my grace to get out, and you have now lavished that grace on others. It's not salvation by works. These people were not trying to earn their salvation. You get no sense of that. They were just lavishing the grace on others they had received from Christ. And so Jesus says to them, well done. You got it. Come into the kingdom that's been prepared for you since the foundation of the world. And then he pivots and he turns to address the other group. And he says, you totally ignored me. You totally ignored me when I needed your help. So I'm sending you to the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This takes us to the first part of our big question. Does hell really exist? 
when we look at Jesus' words, this is what we see. We see that more than any other person in the Bible, Jesus talks about hell the most. We see that he spoke of it as a real historical place where real people go, and it is not a good place to be. In verse 41, he uses the image of eternal fire. We're not sure yet whether he's speaking metaphorically or whether hell is a literal fire. Here's what John Calvin says about that. John Calvin said, Jesus' use of the word fire metaphorically foreshadows the harshness of punishment, which passes beyond our understanding. We can't be sure if he was using a metaphor being literal, but this much is clear. Jesus is saying hell is the most awful place you can think of. Real people are going there, and I don't want you to go there. I don't want us to get too bogged down into precisely what hell is. For the remainder of today, here's how I'll define it. Hell is an ongoing, eternal place of painful, total separation from the presence of God. So does hell exist? When we look at the words of Jesus, if we take his words seriously, we have to conclude that it does. If we conclude otherwise, we have to figure out what to do with Jesus' words. Either we ignore them, we just shut off the alarm clock and ignore it, or we find some reason, some way to to reason his words away. But if we take Jesus' words seriously, it is a real place. So given that Jesus takes it as a real, tangible reality that real people are going to, why would such a place exist? What would be the purpose of it? I live two miles down Ellsworth Street that way, in Shadyside. A couple weekends ago, I was running some errands, and I drove by this football field in Highland Park where a youth football game was going on. And it was a nice day, and the stands were filled, and, and I thought, what a great community event. I should go watch one of those games some weekend. And later on in the week, I turned on the news, and three people had been shot at one of those games. If you find hell morally repulsive, here's the first question you must ask. Are you satisfied with the way the world is? Are you satisfied with a world where a grandmother gets shot watching her grandson play football? Are you satisfied with a 15-year-old Pakistani girl who's shot for wanting to go to school? You and I, for the most part, tend to live very sanitized lives. The ugliness and the grit and the awfulness that is the reality of so many people's lives. We are often separated from that. But if we find hell morally repulsive, we must ask ourselves, are we satisfied with the way the world is? And when we come into contact with the ugliness of the world, we cry out with the psalmist in Psalm 82, how long, O Lord? How long are you going to show favor to the wicked? Arise and rule the earth. If hell does not exist, 
then neither does heaven. You can have heaven and hell together, but you cannot have heaven without hell. If everyone went to heaven, what we would get is the same experience we have here on earth. A mixture of good and bad. A mixture of good, but also amazing atrocities. We ask and we expect governments to provide us a safe society. We want them to provide a place where we can live without bars over our hearts, without bars over the windows of our homes and offices. And deep down, we want the same from God. If you believe in the moral justification for prisons, you believe in the moral justification for hell. As we think about that, maybe our struggle isn't with hell's existence, but with the criteria with which God sends people there. In Ezekiel 18, our ancestors thought God was an unjust judge. Their complaint was that he was too lenient. Many times today, people cry out, God is an unjust judge, but our complaint is he's too tough. I was thinking about this and praying about this, and I realized something. When I say that God is too tough a judge, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that I believe he exists. I'm also saying that he existed long before I did. And he has seen countless generations of human beings go by. He has seen how they operate. I'm saying he knows much more than I do. But at the same time, I'm also saying that I determine right and wrong better than he does. My response to Jesus being the judge, my first response, when I actually stop down and think about it, is thanks. Which one of us would want to hold people's life and death in our hands? On good days, you and I recognize how fallible we are. How many states in the past couple of decades have suspended the death penalty because good, smart, well-intentioned people have unintentionally convicted the wrong people and put them on death row? Is that a responsibility that you want? It's not one that I want. And my second response to God being our judge is praise. Isaiah 11 tells us that unlike us, he will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or hears with his ears. He has this perfect understanding that you and I don't. Jesus talks about hell multiple times. Does he do that to scare us? Absolutely. When I don't wear my helmet, when I go bicycle riding, my mom, some of my friends try and scare me with the consequences because my mom has been in the emergency room and sees what happens when people crash on their bikes and end up as vegetables. Is Jesus trying to scare us? Absolutely. Because he loves us. And it's striking that he does not force any of us to go anywhere. It's clear from the Bible he makes us eternal beings, but he also gives us free will. 
He doesn't turn us into robots now. And when people go to heaven, we won't become robots then. If we don't enjoy spending time in his presence now, he's not going to force us to on the other side of this life. And if you're hearing this, all this stuff that Jesus has to say, my thoughts, that may raise some tough questions for you. That may raise questions like, even though we know that God excludes no one who wants to spend time in his presence, what about those who, who have never heard about him, who have never heard about that invitation? That's an important question. We don't have time to talk about that now. And I'm not using that as a cop-out. You know, as I was working on the sermon, I was amazed. I have never wanted to talk about hell more. And I wish that we had two or three Sundays because there's so many important things to talk about. And so you may have some very tough questions. And if that's the case, here is my challenge to you. Are you willing to put some skin in the game? Are you willing, in a spirit of humility, to come before God in prayer and ask him your tough questions? It's pretty popular to, to complain about God, to scoff at some of the things he says, to complain about him without actually taking those concerns to him. And if you have tough questions, if you're willing to bring them to him in a spirit of openness and humility, he will honor that. If this is really troubling to you, another way to, to work through some of the stuff is to think, if I had to tell people, if I had to talk for 10 minutes and tell people what the Bible says about hell, what would I say? What questions would emerge and wrestle with those questions, pour over scripture? What should our response to all of this be today? I'm going to list a number of things. First, we need to pay attention to the mercy God has given us. And as we understand that mercy more and more, we will give it away to others. And as we give it away, we will understand the mercy more. So pray that we would have the eyes to see Jesus in the disguise of other people. The second thing we can do is to heed Jesus' warning that hell is an awful place. And we can help each other do that by being careful of the language we use. When we're tempted to use the word hell, ask yourself, am I talking about the worst possible punishment I can imagine? If not, find a more accurate word. Ask yourself, Am I talking about something that is never ending? If not, find another word. Are you having the week from hell? Unless you're being waterboarded, you're probably not. As I mentioned before, if the thought of hell is offensive to you, humbly bring your concerns to God. Ask him directly. Whatever we take away, from Jesus' teaching on hell. Let us never say that he did not warn us. And let us never say that he did not invite us to join him in heaven. Jesus always wants to increase the population of heaven. There's no cap 
on visas to heaven. There's no cap. And if you hear Jesus' words this morning and you see that image of people that nobody else will help, that nobody else can help, and you think, gosh, you know what? I wish somebody would help me. Jesus is willing to help you. He's willing to pay the debt you could not pay. He's willing to feed you with the bread of life that fulfills beyond the physical. He's willing to clothe your spiritual nakedness. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we want to humbly come before you. We ask that you would help us to grasp the mercy that you have given to us. We ask that you would empower us to extend that mercy to others. And as we're praying right now, I'd, let's just take 30 seconds, 60 seconds, and whatever your response is to this message, I just invite you to share with that with God silently. Let's just take some time and do that now. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would grant us the humility to submit ourselves to you, to your thoughts, to what you have for our lives. We pray that you would open our eyes to see your son disguised, that we would serve him. We pray that that you would increase the population of heaven. We pray that those who don't know you, who haven't heard about you, in Pittsburgh and all the corners of the world, we pray that they would hear. And we pray that we would be willing to submit our ways to your ways. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.